I'm Luke Story. I'm Christine Loria. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I'm Angie Check. I am Dr. Aaron Eugene McMorrow. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm Kyle Kingsbury. I'm Lily Nichols. I'm Mark Groves. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Jesse Golden. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Marin Green. I'm Kelly Brogan, MD. Hi, this is Kimberly Ann Johnson. Je m'appelle Rick Safries, et c'est le podcast du Gynécologue Holistique. Hello, I'm Paul Check, and this is the Holistic OPGYN Podcast. Enjoy. Errare humanum esed diabolicum preservare. To err is human, but to preserve an error is diabolic. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a crisis in the infectious disease world. Of course, we have seen quite a bit happen over these past couple years during the COVID moment. And it got me really, really interested in viruses. I'm going to be leaning heavily on a couple books. One is named Virus Mania. It's by a two German, I believe they're German, researchers. One is a internal medicine doctor. The other is, is a researcher through and through. And I um, was inspired by some of these books, including Dissolving Illusions, the HPV vaccine on trial, Turtles All the Way Down, um, to write a little piece here. So this little solo cast is really to talk about how we can maybe look from a 30,000-foot view at the virus mania in order to, to try to clarify not to answer these questions, but to just sort of elaborate on some of these questions around what are viruses? Are these these creepy, crawly contagions that are out to get us? Are they, you know, exclusively responsible for disease? We're going to kind of unpack this a little bit over this short recording. And I want to start by saying that research on viruses has followed the same path to nowhere, really, since the adoption of germ theory. So we're talking about over 100 years now. The pathway looks like this. You publicize the risk of a public health disaster, then you incriminate a single virus or otherwise pathogen. You ignore any possible alternative theories or toxic environmental contributors, then you manipulate the data to give a false perception of imminent catastrophe, and then you promise salvation through vaccines. This pathway has guaranteed huge financial returns for vaccine manufacturers, but it has done almost nothing to actually keep the public safe. And this entire process is driven by fear. So for nearly 100 years, virus and vaccine research has been performed without any true controls, and it's generally headlined through consensus opinion of, quote, the experts. And there are so many unanswered questions related to these past epidemics, even like the 1918 Spanish flu or polio. The fathers of germ theory are largely considered to be Pasteur and Koch, and they contributed deep insights into our understanding of bacteria and other contagious infections long before we had even sort of described these viruses. And so when we started running into certain infections and, and disease processes that we didn't really have a great explanation for, we just simply took their work and transposed it onto viruses. And meanwhile, there's been very, very little attention given to any other contributions from toxic, toxic exposures or even nutritional deficiencies that had been ramping up in society around the time that a lot of these viral epidemics kind of broke out. In the oncology world, viruses also provided a very convenient promise 
as to an explanation for this devastating condition known as cancer, um, which is really a reflection of out-of-control cell growth. And this started by, you know, through the isolation of these little strands of nucleic acid from tumors that were instigated in inbred mice. I mean, that already right there, like inbred mice are having these, developing these cancers. We find these little strips of nucleic acid and we started calling them retroviruses. But were these viruses merely associated with mouse tumors? Or were these little particles the upstream cause of malignant cell growth and cancer? We don't know. We've yet to isolate these specific viral particles from human tumors. So it's another question that has remained unanswered. But instead of going back to the drawing board, we just started blaming our sort of poor microscopic capacities for the inability to actually see the viruses. And we invented surrogate markers for these viruses, such as reverse transcriptase. And had it not been for HIV AIDS, viral oncology probably would have just faded away altogether. But in the 70s, there were five cases of severe immune uh, deficiencies that were described by an LA physician. All five were men who were homosexual. They were sniffing amyl amyl nitrate, also known as poppers. Poppers can lead to a very severe toxicity of the blood called methemoglobinemia, whereby, you know, if you check the oxygen saturation, they might be 99%. But the hemoglobin um, that you would find in the case of methemoglobinemia it doesn't let go of the oxygen. So while you have oxygen circulating in the blood, the tissues are not getting any of that. So you end up with this sort of global hypoxia um, at the tissue level. These men were also using um, a bunch of illicit drugs. They were using a ton of antibiotics, and they were probably suffering from other STDs and malnutrition. So instead of investigating the toxic or terrain causes of their immune deficiencies, we were still in this sort of the viral oncology world and the this sort of virology space was still hoping to find their salvation. And they found it. They found it in HIV. They chalked it up to this retrovirus. And to this day, very little scientific evidence has been published to support this hypothesis. And all of the labs and researchers that had been so invested in virology now had this new inspiration for funding and a justification of their jobs, which was AIDS. So lifestyle and the other toxic junk in the environment as a whole. And this is not blaming homosexuals. This is saying like, we've got problems that persist today in our food systems, in our water systems, in our air and soil quality. We have uh, far too many lobbying groups that are driving governmental policy. And um, all of those notions were shoved aside. And the efforts and all of our research dollars were instead dumped into HIV AIDS research. So 25 years later... We've gotten nowhere closer to understanding this disease, nor developing a vaccine against HIV. We've never observed the HIV virus with an electron microscope from a blood sample of a patient with a, quote, high viral load. So it just kind of should make you wonder, like, you might think this is like conspiracy, conspiracy. Maybe, more importantly, how many people have been suffering as a result of these types of conditions because we have been so invested myopically invested on one possible explanation as opposed to taking a big step back and looking at the entire terrain. So why? Why haven't we been able to find, isolate this HIV, this nucleic acid, this retrovirus on a microscope from a blood sample of a patient with a high viral load? Well, it's probably because AIDS isn't totally, completely attributable, if at all, 
to this presumed retrovirus. And tens of thousands of medical scientists have dedicated their careers to the task of, of, quote, curing AIDS. Trillions of dollars have gone to the pharmaceutical companies, and yet we have never cured a single case of AIDS using our conventional medical methods. And a similar story of terrain versus germ theory of viral infection and disease has played out for hepatitis C, SARS, avian flu, HPV, and of course, COVID. So again, to err is human. No, no, no problem there. But to preserve an error, this is diabolic. So how did we get here? If you recall from back, way back, episode 72 of my podcast, it was called um, A Brief History of Western Medicine, Witches, and Women Healers, I believe. Go and listen to that. I spoke a great deal about the breaking free of medicine from the hold of the church. Philosophers like Rene Descartes and Francis Bacon's writings they were of critical importance to separate the mind, body, and spirit. You know, let's, de- let's compartmentalize those things. That gave us permission to dissect cadavers. And this led to huge advancements in medicine. And the pendulum swung to the side of, if I can measure it, it's important. And if not, then it's not the domain of medicine. And for- furthermore, nullius in verba. Don't just trust what someone says. So this was the beginning of our materialistic, reductive way of, of, of uh, practicing medicine. This is the hard science of cutting, looking, noting, and repeating. Again, if you, if you can't show it to me, then I just can't believe it. This was, of course, the principal doctrine behind the witch trials, where empiric therapies used by women healers that didn't have an identifiable mechanism of action were considered witchcraft rather than medicine, even if they did work. The dream... I would say, of material science was to free the masses from ignorance and superstition by leaning heavily on provable provable fact, which was now becoming synonymous with, quote, evidence. Since the 20th century, doctors and scientists have been revered for their role in this promising emerging field of modern medicine, using air quotes a lot on my end here. Their status has arisen so greatly that it has challenged the church as an unquestionable authority on all matters related to life. So us doctors are viewed as so omnipotent that nobody's willing or even permitted to question evidence in or out of favor of various hypotheses produced by the doctors themselves. Instead, we, the masses, have to rely on the media, which has conveniently, conveniently buddied up to this medical establishment because medically related headlines drive readership. But rather than vet out information appropriately, you know, like a journalist is supposed to do, it's become a race to write the most eye-catching headlines. It doesn't matter if it's accurate or relevant. And I know what you're thinking. Maybe I'm being too hard on journalists. And, you know, we would all expect that the sacred halls of medical research would iron out the occasional fraudulent study or irresponsible conclusions from the otherwise generally rigorous and accurate studies that probably make up the majority. That's how it goes, doesn't it? Well, no. I don't think it does. Not anymore, anyways. Marcia Engel, former editor of the New England Journal... Editor-in-Chief, I believe. Richard Horton, former editor of The Lancet. John Gerardini. Peter Gotch. Ben Ben Goldacre. They've all written extensively on Big Pharma's influence on both the media as well as clinical research itself. And most importantly, the world's largest medical journals. You heard what I mentioned. New England Journal. The Lancet. These are two of the most respected medical journals on the planet and always have been. These large medical journals, these revered medical journals, have been selectively publishing clinical trial data based on the biggest bidder from influences ranging from pharmaceutical companies to media moguls to large corporations and politicians. It's bad. There are six key ways in which a pharmaceutical company can produce what appears to be a rigorous clinical trial, but is actually an advertisement in disguise for their toxic baloney drug. Six key ways. 
The first is conduct a trial of your drug against a treatment known to be inferior. The second, trial your drugs against too low a drug, too low a dose of a competitor drug. Three, conduct a trial of your drug against too high a dose of a competitor drug, making your drug seem less toxic. Four, use multiple endpoints, survival time, reduction in blood pressure, for example, in that trial and select for publication only those endpoints that give favorable, that, that demonstrate favorable results. Five, conduct trials that are too small to show differences from competitor drugs. And six, do multi-center trials and select for publication results from centers that had favorable results. This is actually happening, and you're not going to see like show notes for this one, but if you go type in Smith, Richard Smith, the title of the paper was Medical Journals are an Extension of the Marketing Arm of Pharmaceutical Companies in PLOS Medicine, May 2005. You can read about this more. So this, the attitude that a quick route to a long, healthy life feeds this machine. Buy this supplement, do this exercise, quote, biohack your way to a longer life. And this, I see this as no different from pharmaceutical companies advertising these promises in the form of a, of a pill, a pharmaceutical. Yet here we are. And even if we did have a high-quality study performed free of media and political bias by an independent researcher with no financial incentives to produce specific outcomes and therefore make profits for a pharmaceutical company or otherwise, science is never settled, despite what you've been hearing throughout these past couple years in the COVID moment. Per William Osser, regarded as the father of modern medicine, medicine remains a, quote, science of uncertainties. But nevertheless, consensus among scientists often supersedes the limiting process of producing irrefutable evidence. Society has become so damn determined to find an easy way out of our health woes that medical researchers, by choice or otherwise, have pushed aside the original curious attitude that makes science so beautiful in favor of scientism. Indeed, medicine has become a religion of its own, and if you dare question its dogma, you may find yourself on the proverbial witch's stake in the form of excommunication from your social circles, loss of employment, or, if you're a physician, loss of your license to practice medicine, everything you've ever worked for. This is why no amount of favorable home birth data will rapidly change maternity care practices in the United States. This also explains why so few OBGYNs do what I do. The quote, church scientific, capital C, capital S, a term coined by Thomas Huxley, yes, the grandfather of Aldous, cannot be reproached without putting a great deal on the line. Just as the Catholic and Protestant churches of the Middle Ages had omnipotence and immunity against any and all dissent. So we're looking at the new authority du jour, this cult of medicine. In the golden age of medical research, it was nearly impossible for a hypothesis to be accepted as clinically relevant if a favorable study wasn't repeatable in various settings with various patient populations. But not anymore. Studies are too expensive, and repeating a blockbuster groundbreaking headline from a large multinational multicenter trial, regardless of whether it was fraudulently, fraudulently conducted or not, is going to be too expensive, likely too expensive, for big pharma that would cut into their profits and thus even important studies aren't repeated. And even if it were repeated, Big Pharma doesn't want to waste time publishing repetition in medical, journal, medical journals when they could just as easily publish any publish another phony baloney study on a different drug to further increase their profits. What we're left with is a system compelled to make promises related to those things that scare us most. There's that fear again, illness, death, and dying. And the essence of these complicated topics impact both the common man and woman, the doctors and other healthcare professionals, as well as the medical researchers themselves 
We all want, quote, progress towards greater health span and lifespan, but the path that we are on can't come through on those promises. Per Michael Tracy, so profound is our belief in the cures of science that it has become the new secular theology of the 20th century. This belief is so inherent within us that we construct any problem, grievance, pain, or fear in conceptual terms that not only allow us to seek the cure, but demand that we do so. This is a large part of the reason for which many are so willing to let the medical industrial complex continue to be so deeply influenced by large corporations, big pharma politicians, and media narratives. Perhaps we are holding out hope that the, quote, truth will prevail despite these influences on behalf of the betterment of society. Our fear of death and mortality is so deep that we are willing to compromise the process of scientific inquiry itself. This fear has fed a global consumerism where the easiest, most attractive cures, quote, cures, are the most easily adopted into our everyday lives, even as we watch pharmaceutical companies get rich, along with the politicians in which these companies' powerful lobbyists have become inextricably intertwined. It's as if we, you know, if we throw enough money at a medical issue, we can all sleep better at night, regardless of who is profiting in the background. Of course, we have made incredible progress in the field of medicine, particularly in our ability to, uh, as physician surgeons to address traumas, accidents, and general reconstruction of the human meat suit. But there has been very little investment towards preventing and actually curing any diseases. The most expensive chronic diseases such as diabetes, obesity, heart disease, autoimmune processes, and conditions been merely accommodated, yet the headlines on our major media news outlets would lead you to believe that science will eventually save us from our own mortality altogether. Cancer is an interesting case study. If you remember back in 1971, Richard Nixon, he proclaimed a, he sort of declared war on cancer. And he even said we, we'd find a cure by 1975. But we still have no clear understanding of how cancer even comes into being, let alone a cure. Billions have been invested into miracle cures for various cancers over the past several decades, yet the cut, burn, and poison modalities have led us nowhere. That refers to surgery, chemotherapy, sorry, radiation and chemotherapy. Meanwhile, few cancer researchers and oncologists have fully invested their resources into the role of healthy foods, sleep hygiene, gut health, sleep, stress management, and a low-toxin environment on either the incidence of cancer or the ultimate cure. This is all the stuff that I talk about. But in my conversations with oncologists, of whom I've befriended many as a hospice and palliative care doctor, most seem to agree that these factors play a critical role in our, quote, you know, (laughs) Nixon's, quote, war on cancer. Yet little has been invested systematically into cleaning up the environment, the terrain, in order to improve our cancer statistics. Instead, we've doubled down on our pursuit of miracle cures through the pharmaceutical industry. It's estimated that 800,000 Americans die every year from side effects of pills alone. That means prescription drugs, guys, are the third leading cause of death behind cancer and heart disease in the United States and Europe. We have this notion that every headache, stomach ache, or other common malady is a simple cure in an over-the-counter medication. And this is largely unique to the United States, where Big Pharma invests roughly a third of its entire budget on advertising directly to the consumer. New Zealand is the only other nation that permits that, by the way. The tremendous investments that the WHO, the FDA, and even the NIH have made into pharmaceuticals as the miracle cure for all maladies should indicate that it's going to be very, very hard to break the world from this spell. And maybe we are in too deep. Do you guys remember the Purdue Pharma scandal? There was this really rich family, the Sackler family. They bought this little pharmaceutical company called Purdue Frederick in 1952, and they became these early pioneers in medical advertising. 
they were the first company to go directly to physicians and entice them through all sorts of incentives, structures, and whatever, reward systems to entice them to not only take their drugs and, and sell them directly to their, to their clients, their patients, but to also endorse them publicly. In 1987, the Sackler family renamed its pharmaceutical company, which was growing in size, to Purdue Pharma. And there was this drug, it was a fast-acting um, narcotic pain medication called oxycodone that reformulated into a delayed-release formulation. There was concern at the time that, that these drugs were too addictive. So when they released it as OxyContin in 1996, they repackaged it, or they rebranded it, and they went straight to the FDA. They charmed an FDA regular, regulator to approve OxyContin and allow them to put on the label or to advertise it as less addictive than oxycodone. So this rapidly led to an opioid crisis that we're still thwarting today. In fact, uh, my friend Kyle Kingsbury, he just sent me uh, an article about my home state of Kentucky where the opioid crisis is high and, high and tight, that they're starting to, to you know, be thoughtful about Iboga and ketamine therapies there as a sort of last resort. I mean, these are some pretty novel therapies, but I don't think we have too many ideas as to what to do about this. And by the way, that same FDA regulator that, that sort of expedited the approval of OxyContin on behalf of the Sackler family's charm was later offered and given a position at Purdue Pharma that paid $400,000 a year. But we didn't get to this sort of over-prescription of opioids in the United States overnight. I do remember when I was a resident that every patient who had a C-section or even gynecologic surgery was sometimes given a script for Norco. They were given 30 tablets, sometimes even after a vaginal birth. Norco in our country, in case you're you know, from outside of the U.S., is a combination opioid of hydrocodone and acetaminophen. And the reason we were doing this was because patient satisfaction, their pain score, scale of 1 to 10, frowny face to happy face, had become a new metric that the hospital was using in order to determine our quality of care. Like, how well was I doing my job? And what we started doing was saying, hey, don't worry, after your surgery, you're not going to have any pain. We'll give you plenty of meds to take care of that. So every person going into surgery was expecting to not have pain afterwards. And this is not to say that opioids aren't sometimes helpful adjuvants in pain management. I know. I have prescribed probably more opioids in my short career than some people have in their entire lifetime as doctors because I was in hospice and palliative care taking care of people with advanced cervical cancer and that type of thing. But opioids have largely become our primary tool for pain management in almost every medical specialty. Why? Well, it's because pain, with the help of Purdue Pharma's convincing, became this like fifth vital sign. We were able to convince thousands of prescribers, people like me, that these medications are a very reasonable first option for everything from headaches to invasive surgery. There was a report from JAMA 2006 that demonstrated, you know, furthermore, conflicts of interest at the FDA and, and how widespread these things are. They found that members of the FDA receive sums of sometimes tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars in the form of stock ownership or options from big pharma in order to expedite drugs through the approval process, just taking a page from the, the Sackler family. Big pharma's powerful influence has changed the public's perception of illness and cure. It has changed government spending and investment in medical research. It has really changed the entire practice of medicine at large, plain and simple. Marsha Engel, who I mentioned before, the former editor-in-chief at the New England Journal, she wrote a book called The Truth About the Drug Companies, How They Deceive Us and What to Do About It. She said, if prescription medicines are so good, why do they need to be pushed so hard? Good drugs don't have to be promoted. Mm. Perhaps the illusion of grandeur seen across our society is in fact a consequence of our over-medicated brains and bodies. Maybe we're just not thinking straight. 
Perhaps we're struggling to see the truth for ourselves. Maybe many of us are all just walking around dazed and confused thanks to poor oversight from our government officials and agencies who otherwise could have you know, prohibited these sorts of you know, catastrophic things from happening. From that 16th century, when I was talking about Rene Descartes, when, when those philosophers put us onto this course, we never, truly never developed a clear understanding of disease and cure. And when microbiology arrived, it really sealed this fate. We could now ascribe every single disease, infection, and malady to a microbe directly visualized through the lens of a microscope. Bacteria, fungi, and even viruses became public enemy number one. This is straight from virus mania. The cornerstone was laid for modern biomedicine's basic formula with its monocausal microbial starting point and its search for magic bullets. One cause, or one disease, one cause, one cure. So the hunt for microbes was ignited in, this, in a holistic approach or even understanding of the human condition fell by the wayside. And this is bad news for medicine, as there is, there is, and never will be, a single disease that has a single identifiable cause. The human being is animated by a being, the human meat suit, if you want to call it that. And all of the beautiful fluids, energies, and tissues that comprise our bodies work in harmony. Anything that throws these delicate systems out of harmony can result in disease. If microbes were the cause of many diseases that plague humanity, then we're doomed. As microbes fill our air and soil, cover our skin, and outnumber us by mass in our intestines alone. And when these pandemics hit, not everybody seems to be impacted. Even on his deathbed, Louis Pasteur, remember one of the founding fathers of germ theory, who is famously remembered for saying the microbe is nothing, the train is everything. To ask why not is now heresy, due to the spell that's been cast by these powerful forces I've already discussed. Nevertheless, the growing body of literature that connects physical symptoms and mental and emotional illness to our gut, which is teeming with bacteria and other microbes, is um, bustling. And few of my colleagues are even willing to acknowledge what has been made very, very clear over the past few decades through this literature, that the bulk of our immune system resides in the gut, in gut-associated lymphatic tissue. Over time, our obsession with the microbe theory of disease hasn't necessarily panned out, though. Look at pertussis. Pertussis, also known as whooping cough, it's caused by infection by a bacteria called Bordetella pertussis. And this infection can be fatal to children, no doubt. A vaccine was universally introduced in the 1960s. The death rate per million children in England and Wales peaked around 1860 at roughly 1,500 per million children. But then it started a steep decline to just about 20 per million in 1950. Then the vaccine was introduced, and all the attention has been paid to the benefit of that vaccine since then. That span of 100 years, from 1850 to 1950, also happens to have been a period of time when we saw tremendous improvements in nutrition, water purification, and other food, food safety and sanitation measures. Nowadays, death from this so-called infectious disease or a rarity in developed nations. If it were the vaccine alone, then we wouldn't have seen a steep decline until it was introduced in 1950. But that's not what happened. You could do a similar analysis on a variety of other infectious diseases. And cleaning up the terrain seems to be far more responsible for the management of infectious diseases than universal vaccination. So if vaccines aren't a boon, then why are we dishing out so many to kids? Back in 1962, three doses were administered to children. By 1983, 24 doses. In 2018, 72 doses. So if we can acknowledge that hygiene and nutrition are at least of equal importance to reducing deaths from infectious diseases in children as vaccines, though I would argue vaccines are far less helpful and perhaps even detrimental to the health of children, then why does the vaccine schedule get beefier by the decade? Of course, it would be no surprise if universal vaccination for SARS-CoV-2, COVID, and its future variants and all other future viral illnesses, or viral illnesses were added to this growing list in the coming years. 
as a doctor, it's my job to ask questions. And as a scientist, it's my job to pose and evaluate hypotheses. So one important question we have to ask is, if these vaccines aren't helpful, could they be harmful? To answer this first question, let's consider two specific mechanisms by which vaccines may impact the ability of our immune system to do its job. The first is vaccinating a person who already has antibodies against the target contagion may lead to long-term suppression of their immune system. So let's look at measles. There was a Danish researcher, Tove Rohn, demonstrated high rates of cancer and autoimmune diseases in humans vaccinated while immune globulin was present. Immune globulin is another name for antibody. Quote from Rohn. This is in a paper from 1985 in The Lancet. And I have the PMID here, 2856946, if you want to read it for yourself. Quote, the decreasing maternal antibody levels in children under one year of age are inversely related to increasing responsiveness of infants to measles vaccine. In those who receive a primary vaccination against measles before 10 months of age, revaccination several years later is often unsuccessful, indicating that immunization performed while antibody is present may induce a long-term suppressive effect. Do we know that that's actually what happens? No, but there's a question there that hasn't been answered. The second mechanism is known as original antigenic sin, which basically says that vaccinating against a specific viral particle or protein may result in a robust response to that specific particle or protein, but inhibits a more robust global immune response. What I'm going to read here is a a little quote from uh, a great blog that emerged during the COVID years, anonymous writer. It's uh, Eugipius, a plague chronicle. It's E-U-G-Y-P-P-I-U-S. The mechanisms of original antigenic sin are not fully understood, but we have a rough idea of what might be happening. When a virus infects your body for the first time, your naive memory B cells imprint on specific virus proteins or antigens presented to them. These B cells then become either memory B cells or plasma cells. Forever after, they specialize in producing antibodies against those specific antigens. And when a slightly mutated form of the virus arrives, these memory B cells begin pouring forth antibodies the antibodies they learn to produce during the first infection. These antibodies bind to multiple epitopes on the virus particles, and in the process, they give the slower-moving naive B cells little chance to learn about any new mutant virus features. In a separate blog post that this uh, author wrote, quote, In September, a small study conducted by researchers at the Erasmus Medical Center in Rotterdam looked at the antibody response of 20 severely ill corona patients admitted to the ICU, comparing their cases to 12 mild infections and six negative negative controls. They found that the immune response of the severely ill, unlike that of the mild patients, was dominated by IgG antibodies against ordinary seasonal coronaviruses. In other words, the most severely ill patients had fewer naive B-cells imprinting on SARS-CoV-2 and more memory B-cells producing antibodies against the somewhat similar common coronaviruses these patients had recovered from in the past. As the authors note, this is the phenomenon of original antigenic sin. The immune systems of these severely ill patients were trained by many years of exposure to the mild alpha and beta coronaviruses that routinely infect humans to send these same common coronavirus antibodies against SARS-2. These antibodies were ineffective against the new virus and they inhibited a robust naive B-cell response. So these combined with a variety of relevant concerns related to the detrimental effects of heavy metals added to the vaccines as stabilizing agents such as aluminum, the evolving definition of, quote, vaccine to, induce, to include novel gene therapies, this is what we saw with the mRNA vaccines, and the tremendous epidemiologic surge in autoimmune conditions that coincides with the ramping up of the childhood vaccine schedule. And we have enough fodder for another 50 years of exploration, but mainstream medicine is rarely asking these questions. 
A second important question that a responsible scientist must make is, are there alternative hypotheses that might better explain periods of widespread illness than a single microbe or virus? In answer to this second question, let's turn to some relative experts' opinions. Kerry Mollis, who's a biochemist who won the Nobel Prize, not a slacker. Uh, his prize was um, for his role in developing the polymerase chain reaction, PCR technology. It's now become a household name in the post-COVID era. He declared before his death in 2019 that the entire virus-busting industry plies its dogmas, declaring them to be eternal truths without the support of factual evidence. Harvard Med School, John Abramson asked, so what are dedicated, dedicated clinicians to do? The first step is to give up the illusion that the primary purpose of modern medical research is to improve Americans' health most effectively and efficiently. In our opinion, he and his co-authors, the primary purpose of commercially funded clinical research is to maximize financial return on investment, not health. In the coming months, I'm going to be providing an in-depth analysis of these topics as they pertain to HPV and cervical cancer. It's a course going to be called Clear and Free. It's under the Born Free University umbrella. You probably remember hearing at least something about the Born Free Method or Pregnancy and Postpartum course me and Sarah Ross are uh, produced. This one's going to go deeper into HPV and cervical cancer. And I don't you know, speak like this because I propose to have the answers, but I do think I'm asking the right questions. If the system, in quotes, was interested in health, there would be far more attention on the role of diet, movement, sleep, stress, water, mindset, breathing, and toxic junk in our environment than the pursuit of one pathogen, one disease, one cure. And this is why I had to step out of the system. Because I'm in pursuit of health for my patients, my clients, and I have zero interest in towing party lines and further patting big farmer politicians' pockets. But modifying the terrain, as I've been you know, speaking so you know, poetically about, also known as, quote, lifestyle modification, is not an easy task. In the words of Leo Tolstoy, man prefers to perish rather than change his habits. Yet to what do we owe this diligence? We already have an ecological disaster on the horizon, as human beings have extracted just about every last breath from our farmable soils, forests, and oceans. Perhaps if we want to do what's right for the planet, we should start considering how we care for ourselves. And these issues aren't exclusive. It is our destruction of the planet that is perhaps the most perilous aspect of the train that is simultaneously killing our species. We are the most medicated than we ever have been in history. Our soils and waterways are the most polluted. Our air is unbreathable for all intents and purposes due to the simultaneous contamination of this great planet's air and destruction of old growth forests and rainforests by 20% per year, putting roughly 10,000 species of flora and fauna on the brink of extinction per a July 2021 report. We depend on clean water, air, and soil guys to survive. And we depend on the billions of species of bacteria, mammals, rodents, fish, birds, and insects for our survival. And what are we busy doing as humans? Investing in vaccines and pharmaceuticals. Reclaiming our health is not just a matter of saving our species. It's, it, it matters to all the living things on this once green, thriving planet. This is hard to fathom, guys. But man is, quote, not an Aristotelian god that encompasses all existence. He is a creature with a development who can only comprehend a fraction of reality. Those are the words of Elizabeth Noel Newman. The, quote, experts that are guiding the health policy are no exception. Us doctors barely have an elementary understanding of molecular and cell biology, let alone the ability to digest all of the published literature and synthesize the complexities of economics, technology, ecology, heck, let's throw spirituality into there, into a unified theory of healthy living. In all of my years of medical education and training, not once have I been satisfied with any physician's answer to the seemingly simple question of what is life. So what can we do? In the words of Voltaire, we must take care of our garden. This is simply put, but challenging to implement in today's world, where microbes have been singled out as the solitary cause of most disease. 
Don't be fooled by the narrative. Everything is connected. There is no single culprit for what ails us. No amount of masking, social isolation, screening methods, or vaccines are going to save us. The most disruptive thing that we can all do in a world in which power and authority is increasingly vested to a small fraction of elite fat cats who are profiteering off of laziness, illusion, and distractibility is to take your health back. If you want to shake up the medical system, reclaim your health, reclaim your power, take care of the planet, and tend to your garden. I'll see you next time on the Holistic Obituary Podcast. Take care, everybody.